Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. Today, we have Ryan Shearman with Aether here to talk about everything that he is building. And just to get started, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey uh, getting to where you are today and and what that journey has been like personally? So my climate adventure, my journey in the climate space started uh, really as a young boy. I fell in love with the outdoors. Interestingly enough, I fell in love with the outdoors because I was spending a lot of time riding dirt bikes and go-karts and things like that that burned gasoline. And uh, that really wasn't something that I thought about a lot as a child. And, and later in life, when I was in college, I started building some DIY electric motorcycles. And that really kind of lit a fire in my heart for uh, understanding just the role that EVs would play uh, in, the, in the broader kind of transportation spaces. It was so obvious to me. 10, 15 years ago that electric vehicles were going to be the future of transportation. And, and I really wanted to see how I could marry that with my own personal interests. I ended up professionally working in the jewelry industry. I spent some time developing products for uh, a large jewelry brand and then ended up leaving the industry to start my first venture back business. And in the process of building that company, uh, I fell in love with the idea of, of having an impact-oriented business model. So after we had sold that company, uh, I really wanted to start a company that had its mission so baked into its DNA that it would be, you know, almost impossible to discern what that entity did or or, or served as without that impact component. And in fact, now I, I often say that Ether is not a company with a mission, but a mission with a company. And uh, and that goal was something that was heavily informed by my personal interest in climate and understanding, you know, what humanity was doing to engage in uh, in the climate fight, what technologies we were developing. I am an engineer. So throughout this entire journey, there's been kind of a, a mental mapping of things that I'd understood from a technical perspective and understanding the business opportunities. And ultimately, uh, in 2018, we started Ether because everything that was happening in climate was so visceral, so right in front of our eyes. I was in New York for Hurricane Sandy in 2017. We had a number of hurricanes that devastated the American Southeast and the Caribbean. And there were a number of people who were close to me whose lives were impacted in, in real ways. And that was something that really just got me thinking that, hey, you know, maybe there's something that I can do to, to help you know, in the fight. And here we are. It's been almost five years since we started Ether, and and I feel uh, that I've gone down the right path. That I've been putting my efforts, devoting them to the right cause, and putting them forth in a way that will hopefully allow us to uh, to, to stick to our broader climate goals as a as a species. Uh, but it's really it's it's been something that always somehow comes back to uh, my love for the outdoors, and I don't think that's ever going to change. Just as an introduction for the audience here, can you tell us what Ether does and its context as a climate solution. So Ether is a carbon to value company. We take streams of captured CO2 and convert that into valuable materials. Ether Diamonds, our first product, were diamonds created entirely of captured atmospheric CO2. So initially, we started working with uh, one of the world's leading DAC companies, Climeworks, and sourced CO2 from them to create diamonds that had you know gem grade characteristics that we could use in high end jewelry. From there, as we have gotten pretty good at our underlying 
chemistry, we have continued to lean in and scale that technology. Really, what we specialize in is not producing diamonds, it's producing ultra-high methane, CH4, from captured CO2. So as we continue to grow as a company, we will be introducing other solid carbon products made from captured CO2. Uh, that might range from carbon black, which could be used to produce tires mm -hmm. in a more environmentally advantaged way, or it could be used to produce graphene, uh, which has a wide range of different applications across a number of different industry verticals. So really, uh, any, anything that ties atmosphere or even point source capture all the way through to utilization in a solid carbon product. That's really where we're, we're looking to operate. Um, and this will touch a wide range of different consumer categories, which we get excited about. Uh, and we really want to be representative of this transition away from fossil fuels and, and create a bit of a consumer-facing ingredient brand. We'll work with, with other brands and other companies uh, to help them produce their products in more responsible ways. So that's interesting going for um, more of a consumer-focused direct-to-consumer diamond company to more of a B2B and B2B2C type of company. Can you talk me through that decision and thought process and, and how you arrived there? I can't say we're doing exactly what we had envisioned five years ago. I think that's a good thing. I think you should always be open to changing with new inputs and as the market evolves. And certainly COVID was something that we didn't see coming uh, You know, when we were doing some early foundational work in 2018. That said, even our earliest pitch decks talked about uh, how direct-to-consumer jewelry was a stepping stone to getting to a more of a B2B wholesale supply business model for the jewelry market. And then later on, there would be other materials. We knew that we could use methane and our underlying methanization technology to operate in a number of different verticals. Uh, we didn't know exactly where. Frankly, we didn't have all of the same understanding we have today in terms of where high purity methane is used as a feedstock. Uh, turns out there are so many different applications and, and that's really what gets us excited. It, it'll allow us to take this essentially platform technology that we've developed and, and point it at a number of different areas that are uh, currently reliant on fossil methane as a, as a primary feedstock. So speaking to my earlier comments around my journey here, electric vehicles have been something that uh, are, are near and dear to my heart. And every time you make a, you know, a lithium ion battery, for instance, you need to source graphite uh, for components in the battery. Uh, a node of graphite is, is used to make the anodes, uh, large flake graphite. You can dig that up out of the ground or you could you know, process our methane to produce graphite. So there's a world where you know we can help in the future electrification of planet Earth as we shift away from fossil fuels. I love actually that tie-in from electric vehicles. So electric vehicles, you knew them. You knew them as a solution 10, 12 years ago. I was also in electric vehicles at that time and nobody, not a lot of people were talking about electric vehicles, but you were there building them in your garage. And I was looking at a lot of EV chargers. So um, I think that's interesting to see that today you have a company that is able to, you have built a company that is sourcing and creating the solutions for some of the other uh, sectors that you've been involved with um, and experiences that you've had too. But I think it's interesting because you do have that electric vehicle experience. When you were thinking about the next thing to start and you wanted to do something with climate and you had that electric vehicle experience and you had the jewelry experience, what made you follow the diamond and jewelry side of things with ether, direct air capture? instead of going in the electric vehicle side in terms of climate? I had someone approach me about starting an electric motorcycle company. Had to have been 2012. And this is before I had really ventured into the world of startups and started my entrepreneurial journey. And that, the thought process for me, that was so removed from reality to go and, and start an electric motorcycle company. And in fact, you know, in the time from whenever that was, might have been 2012, there were only a handful of, of electric motorcycle manufacturers out in the world selling product. It's been an industry or a sector that has had a, a ton of crazy stories and companies that have splashed onto the scene, you know, made some big waves only to, you know, completely disintegrate. Uh, intellectual property has been purchased for pennies on the dollar and moved from one company to the other. And uh, there, there's been a, a ton of scandal in that space. And, and I'm, I'm actually glad that I stayed fairly far away from it. Um, I, my interest there is purely one as an enthusiast. When 
I made the decision to start a climate-oriented company, it was really off the back of one crazy question. Could we take this captured CO2 in the air that we're now bringing down and turn it into diamonds, which are 100% carbon? Uh, and it was really an errant question in a conversation I was having with my now co-founder uh, after reading about DAC. And it was really, it was one of those things where the words escaped my mouth. Do you think we could do this? And as soon as the concept was, you know, spoken into reality, I knew I wasn't going to be able to shake it. I knew I was going to have to chase it down. And, uh, and I had line of sight to how we might do that. I had a, a pretty clear idea from day one that, you know, this is something that's achievable. Uh, there's a chemistry called the Spatier reaction that's probably about 100 years old that I was familiar with. And I knew if we could take captured carbon, turn it into high-purity methane, we would be able to use it as the feedstock to make a diamond. And, and that concept to me wasn't even a climate-oriented concept as much as it was just a really cool engineering challenge. You know, could we make diamonds from air? Just the sound of that to me was so intriguing. And as we really looked under the hood and started getting into the problem, we realized, yeah, you can do this. You're never going to be able to solve the climate crisis by turning all of the world's excess CO2 into diamonds. Uh, it's just impossible to scale the technology to that level. Diamonds are very small, and there's a lot of carbon in our air, uh, and we are emitting a lot more of it. And, and frankly, it, for us, diamonds were attractive because it could, they could serve as our you know, Tesla Roadster, that, that first you know, high-profile inaugural product, bring it to the market, gather you know, the attention of the masses. We've said often, my co-founders and I, that you, you have to toe the line between you know, culture and science. If you want to catch people's attention, you need to do something that is culturally relevant, tell a story that can... You know, enter the zeitgeist in ways that really banal, science-oriented, technical conversations just completely fail to. And, and, and that's really how we got started. Let's go make diamonds. Let's, let's get some press. Let's get onto the cover of Time magazine and, and excite people about the potential here and utilize this initial product to, to build a strong foundation for the business upon which we could scale the technology. Um, diamonds are not going anywhere as it pertains to our business and as it pertains to the consumer market. But for us, it's really just a stepping stone to getting to a, a much greater scale. Uh, and that's something that we'll do with other solid materials. So, you know, when coming full circle, electric vehicles for me are absolutely the future of transportation, but they come with a ton of challenges that I don't want to touch. Uh, however, if we can introduce a process that allows us to make Tires, for instance, something that's absolutely vital to the transportation sector in a more environmentally advantaged way, then I think that's something I can get pretty excited about. It gets me close enough to it. You mentioned DAC, and I just want to unpack that technical term, DAC. If uh, Could you kind of lay that out for us and some of the uh, challenges or issues that are currently or discussions that are happening around direct air capture around DAC right now and some of the differences that you've seen with the discussions happening today? In the broader context of carbon capture, there, there are two prevailing technologies, direct air capture, which is very on the nose. We are directly capturing carbon from the air. Uh, and then you have point source capture, which refers to the capture of carbon from uh, sources of emission, like a flu stack, for instance. Or imagine if we were talking about a motorcycle, something could bolt onto the exhaust pipe of my bike and capture the CO2 that was coming out of the exhaust, that would be a point source solution. Uh, I, I know of at least one company that's working on something like that for uh, tractor trailers, uh, not necessarily motorcycles. But um, in, in the context like of direct air just, capture, you are... Just curious. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tractor trailers. Uh, there's a company yeah. called uh, Remora. And then they're, they're developing a, a point source solution to, to capture CO2 at the point of emission for you know, these big heavy trucks. Uh, in in the scope of direct air capture and, 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 and utilization and where that CO2 goes, you can pull CO2 out of the air. The challenge is it's fairly energy intense to pull that CO2 out of the air because you have to operate a lot of fans. Uh, you have to move the air. So you have, you have these big fans often arranged in large arrays, pulling air through some type of filtration solution. I use filtration fairly loosely. Um, amine filtration is the kind of the chemistry du jour that's used to chemically bond to CO2, right? So you have air coming through, 
CO2 is chemically bonded to some type of filter medium. And then on the other side, the air is coming out and it's atmospheric air minus CO2. You run that for a certain uh, amount of hours and the, the filter medium, uh, for filtration medium saturates in CO2. And then all of a sudden, uh, you'll see the concentration of CO2 coming out of the back of that uh, start to increase. And that's how you know it's fully saturated. And you would then turn the machine off, start the desorption process so you can extract the CO2, compress it into a bottle, uh, and start the cycle all over again. Now, because you're moving so much air, there's a high energy need and comparable to other you know, practices that we've developed, even as simple as planting trees, uh, direct air capture is relatively energy intense. And if you're not sourcing that energy through renewable or zero emission energy sources, then you're going to have a resultant carbon footprint and uh, the math doesn't really check out great there. So that's one challenge. Um, relative to other solutions, it's energy intense. If you then talk about utilization, what do you do with the CO2? There are some companies that are taking that CO2 and, and pumping it into the ground, uh, specifically into certain types of rock formations. A certain types of rock formation will take CO2 and, and become more rock, right? So um, there, there are some really great efforts underway there. But that, that begs the question, uh, if we are pulling this CO2 out of the air and it can be used to do a number of different things, why are we pumping it under the ground, right? It's just one way to kind of quote unquote, get rid of it, right? And then it could be monetized through the sale of carbon offsets, carbon credits. Um, so you can you can monetize that in a way that is becoming more viable, but historically has really relied on, on subsidy, um, whether we're talking about nonprofits, NGOs, or even, you know, uh, at the governmental level, uh, subsidies have been required to get back to where it is today. And uh, we're starting to see a significant amount of, of uh private investment happening in, in the DAC space. And, and that's great. We need to scale the technology. The IPCC report this year and last year, they made it very clear that engineered solutions to, to remove carbon from the atmosphere are necessary if we're going to limit global warming to one and a half or even two degrees C. So we know that we need this tool kind of in our arsenal. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted because I think the unit economics are still fairly challenging. I'm conflicted because I think uh, to utilize that CO2 makes more sense than simply to bury it underground. And I, and I want to give you an example as to uh, what I'm talking about when I say that. Very directly, as it pertains to, say, our business in diamonds. If we were to pull CO2 out of the air and, and bury it underground, it's gone. Meanwhile, there's a need for diamonds in the market. And those diamonds can either come from the ground, from diamond mining, really harmful extractive process. Uh, we want to avoid that. right? So the next alternative is lab-grown diamonds. The feedstock, the primary carbon source used to grow a lab-grown diamond today is fossil methane, right? So I explained this earlier. We take captured CO2, we convert it into methane, and then we can make things with it. I would rather take direct air capture, implement it to capture CO2 that can be turned into methane to offset our need for fossil methane in order to produce that product because that consumer demand is not going away. In fact, consumer demand for diamonds has increased year over year for over a century. It's a, it's a, you can almost rest assured that this industry is going to keep growing. Um, and if we're going to be able to, to furnish consumers and the businesses that supply those consumers with the material they need, why wouldn't we want to get that from as responsible a source as possible? And in this case, it would be ether's atmospheric methane, uh, which we can't produce without a carbon capture source. When we started, we were exclusively direct air capture oriented. The DAC market has evolved quite a bit in the last four and a half years. Uh, Climeworks was kind of the end-all be-all when we started this business. And today, I would say there's upwards of 40 or 50 DAC companies that you can find with a quick Google search that are working to you know, uh, develop various implementations of, of DAC technology. And I, that makes me very excited to see that the market is maturing, that these technological solutions are maturing, each with their own kind of unique approach to it. Um, I think for us to, to come in and, and be kind of an application layer solution to the DAC market and be a fairly cost and sensitive buyer of that material, uh, it should help, you know, we hope, inspire other companies that uh, there's, a, there's an alternative path here. We don't have to simply bury the CO2 into the ground. We can use it to make valuable materials that otherwise are going to be made from fossil carbon sources. Makes sense. Perfect walkthrough. Uh, something you mentioned during our pre-interview was Finding Project Drawdown. Do you mind talking about that a bit? That's how this whole thing started. When 
when I sold my previous company, I was continuing to work uh, for the group that bought us and I've been doing some consulting and, and I had some time to really just sink my teeth into what was happening in climate. Remember, I started listening to every podcast I could find and I was reading whatever books people would recommend to me. And uh, my now wife got me a copy of Drawdown, the book from Project Drawdown. And what I loved about it was it was an easy kind of snackable book. You know, it's an anthology of sorts. You can you can pick it up and read a section, put it down, and tomorrow, you know, very easy to just kind of pick up and put down. And it became kind of a go-to for me on my morning commute. And at the tail end of the book, they have a section on, you know, solutions that are forthcoming. And and that's where I first read about direct air capture. So it was that day. It was the very day I read about it that I had kind of right in, in you know, in real time, asked my now co-founder, could you imagine if we could make diamonds from that capture carbon? And really, I started by asking him, have you heard of direct air capture? Because I found it fascinating. I had, I, I just was not aware that this was something that, uh, that was being developed. And, and I immediately was able to connect the dots because, of, listen, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I understand that diamonds are 100% carbon. And now there's a way to source carbon that I hadn't heard of before. So it was a very logical conclusion for me. Uh, and that's really the, the role that Project Drawdown's book, Drawdown, uh, played in, in our founding story. And now I give a copy of that to uh, every one of our team members when they start. Um, I'm a huge fan of just the general approach that Project Drawdown has taken uh, to educating people and companies and taking a very science-driven approach uh, to, to you know, developing their stance, their, you know, their position on various topics, direct air capture and otherwise. Um, I, they're a great resource I recommend to everybody who's interested in, you know, either becoming a part of the climate fight, fight professionally uh, or, or simply just interested in learning more. Just for a little context, uh, Project Drawdown lists out existing technologies today that can be deployed and scaled to fully address the climate crisis and bring us within the GHG emissions that we need to hit in order to reach our climate goals. There are 100 solutions where you don't need new technologies and they just need to be deployed and scaled. Then they also list out some new technologies on the horizon, which direct air capture is one of those. So I, I love their approach as well because climate change can feel so overwhelming. Yet when you think about 100 or 110 or 200 different types of solutions, if each of those addresses just 1% of the climate solution, we'll get there. And that seems a lot easier to manage as a human you know, how are we going to get there? It seems so big. And you break it down that way and you, you feel like it's possible again. When you started that transition from general jobs, general uh, participation in the world to thinking about climate on a daily basis to building a climate tech company, what was that like when you were talking with your friends and family? That's a great question. And, and, and one I was talking about with someone that was kind of very dear to me recently because he was someone who really didn't subscribe to, I think, even his own current belief structure around climate change and uh, whether or not climate change is really anthropogenic versus you know, something that's a little bit more cyclical. And, you know, he, I've been urging him to read more and more over the last four or five years. And, and uh, you know, he basically said, if it weren't for some of those conversations, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today. And I, I, I think those conversations would have happened regardless, especially because, you know, right immediately pre-COVID, climate was starting to have a moment. Um, it was really starting to, to, to catch a lot of people's attention. It was getting a lot of airtime. COVID completely uh, disrupted that. But I think now in the post-COVID world, if we can call it that, uh, we're starting to see it come back in, in a big way. It's influencing conversations that I'm having at the dinner table. Uh, not only you know with my wife in our household, but at major holidays when I'm sitting with my larger family, it's something that my friends are interested in learning more about professionally. I, how can I get into the climate space? I have people ask me that all the time, and you know, climate's not a, a space, it's not an industry, it's not a vertical. Uh, climate solutions, climate-oriented solutions and technologies will touch every industry the world over. So if you're operating you know, in, in a vertical that hasn't been impacted by that yet. It's simply a matter of time. If you're working for a company that hasn't really factored that into their go forward path, it's a matter of time. Companies need to innovate or go the way of the Buffalo. And I think we're going to continue to see everything moving in the direction it needs to be. It's, it's the question for me is more of one of, can we, can we muster the, the political will 
to go and, and take these solutions that we know already exist and, and scale them and deploy them the way that needs to be done in order to mitigate global warming. I, I, I do think we'll get there. I think, especially when I see the energy from, from younger folks, especially here in America, uh, the energy is there. Uh, it seems like the will is there. And, and these are people who are, you know, getting to voting age. And, and this is going to be something that impacts who we elect to represent us and the, and the, the programs and, and the incentives that are put in place. And, you know, I think it's, it's something that gives me, uh, gives me some hope. You know, when I started this company, it was based largely off of wanting to understand my own legacy and what I was going to, you know, what I was going to achieve myself, right? Like, and with our team, but like legacy to me is not, you know, how many zeros I have at the end of a bank account. I didn't have two children like I do now when I started the company, but it was really, it was influenced heavily by wanting to leave this planet a little bit better off than it was when I got here. And and I think, you know, slowly but surely we're, we're, we're chipping away at that. I'd like to think that, you know, the work that we've done has to some degree indelibly impacted the, the jewelry industry, the diamond industry. And, I, and I'm excited to see where we can, you know, scale our technology and where, where we can bring it to bear in other markets and hopefully have that same impact. So you know, I'm, uh, I'm the eternal optimist here. <laughs> I think that's a bit of the engineer as well. You can engineer your way out of the solution or out of the problem. Science got us into the problem in many ways. <laughs> it will get yes. us out. You know, there are natural solutions to climate as well. Like, I, of course, I am a big fan of engineered solutions. But you know, even in in draw down the book, uh, there, there there is a laundry list of natural solutions uh, that are being implemented to to help achieve drawdown. And and I think uh, those aren't to be kind of undersold. They're as vital to the overall you know effort that's being mounted at a global scale. Um, you know, we need to implement regenerative farming practices. We need to really take a look at, you know, how the modern day agricultural system we have here in the United States is, is helping or hurting, frankly, more of the latter, uh, you know, with respect to climate and understanding how our decisions on a day to day level actually do, you know, really drive decisions upstream uh, at the, the companies we buy things from and where they get their raw materials from. All of those things are really important factors. And, you know, it all it all comes full circle. Something I really appreciate about Ether is just the sexiness of it with diamonds, the ability of consumers to latch on to that idea. And I think that's a really big difference between some of the climate solutions are, that are out there are behind the scenes, truly B2B solutions. And what you've been able to do almost as a a way for consumers to start thinking about climate, starting with something as precious and as beautiful as a diamond. I love that that psychology to get consumers thinking about climate. How have you kind of approached that with thinking about the the like B2C market and then also just how what that marketing looks like to the consumer as well? Yeah, I mean, frankly diamonds excited us early on because of that sexiness because we realized that there are folks that are going to be hard they're going to come into this broader climate fight kicking and screaming and if we can start talking about and demonstrating you know, how we can make products in a, in a better way that they already want to buy that they already understand diamonds are ubiquitous everyone knows what a diamond is and what they're used for there are applications i'm sure the average joe uh does not understand um diamond material is used for quantum computing we don't have to get into those types of applications but very specifically for jewelry it was an easy one to understand i think a lot of people understand diamonds are made of carbon and they understand that we have carbon in the air and it's a very easy logical connection but it's that sexiness it's that romanticism uh that we really latched onto, and that's been front and center for us ever since we started the company and it's going to be front and center for us as we continue to grow we don't have to sell jewelry directly to a consumer in order to do that you know we can sell our diamonds to the many jewelry brands that they like to buy from and those jewelry brands can carry our message on in a bigger way and, and, and it allows us to have a, a bit of a megaphone moment right where it's not just us telling the story but brands and retailers the world over telling that same story. And that's something that, you know, we've, we've been working towards and we're finally getting to the point where we can start to, to distribute diamonds in a, in a B2B wholesale fashion. And that serves as kind of the precursor to us operating in these other verticals. And if we hadn't started with diamonds, if we hadn't gotten the attention. Um, frankly, our lead investor in our series, a found out about us because of an article in Vogue 
talking about what we were doing. If it weren't for that upfront kind of sexy approach, would we have met them? Would we have been able to raise the funding that we've been able to raise to get our message out there, to develop the technology and get it ready to, to really scale? Um, maybe, maybe not. You know, so the, the, there's been a real world benefit to us taking that approach out of the gate. Uh, I alluded to this being kind of our Tesla Roadster. It's the same approach Tesla took to, to building something that was not only, you know, capable of getting you from A to B, but doing it in a way that looked great and doing it in a way that was super fast. And you can't just come out with a product that's a direct replacement. There needs to be kind of that extra story. Diamonds from Air was a story that's easy to understand, easy to tell. Um, and they're beautiful diamonds. I mean, we're, we're making stones that are north of five carats, you know, high color, high clarity, suitable for use by, you know, in, in, the, in the best, most beautiful jewelry pieces, uh, you know, the market has to offer. And I think if we were looking to simply scale our impact as a direct-to-consumer jewelry business, that would be extremely limiting. So we want to go big here. We want to offer this to, to as many jewelers that want to use our stones, uh, you know, as possible. And it's something that we hope to carry on, you know, as we continue to, to move into more of these kind of B2B oriented opportunities, the end products are going to touch consumers. So we believe that the story should be told throughout, right? If we're going to make a, uh, say, a, a note of graphite for batteries, then whoever is using that in their batteries is going to want to tell that story, right? If we're making a carbon black product for use in tires, the automaker that's selling the vehicle that uses those tires to consumers they're going to want to tell that story, right? So storytelling is so integral. It's necessary to engage humanity at scale. We, we really do need to be in this fight together. We are in it together, whether we believe that or not. Uh, and frankly, like, you know, your, your initial question was like, how does that compare against the juxtaposition of like these other quiet behind the scenes B2B companies? Both are absolutely vital. They are absolutely vital. There are Tons of companies that may not be doing something so sexy, but their impact is huge, right? We absolutely need that. For us, our, our impact will be one that's climate-oriented, but hopefully one that's also, you know, societal in a manner of speaking. You know, if we're working with top celebrities and top brands and we're continually reinforcing our messaging around climate and why this is important, that is going to find its way into the ears and minds of, of consumers downstream and, and hopefully uh, one that continues to inspire them and show them that you know there are better ways to source the products that we want, the products that we need. You know, Americans in particular, like we're not going to give up driving and flying and changing our lifestyle. Maybe we don't have to drastically change our lifestyle if there are ways we can continue to, you know, satiate the, the thirst of consumers have for these different things in a responsible manner. And that's really our goal. That's what we want to continue doing. That's what we've tried to do from day one. I think we're still doing it today and we'll continue to do it in the future. I'd love to get into a bit more about the nuts and bolts of the company. And I want to hear some of those parts of founding the company and the resources you found useful. I'm thinking about our listeners who might be thinking they want to start a climate tech company in the next two to five years. What were some of those tools at the beginning that you started thinking about? And this is your second startup. What are those tools that are now tried and true for you that really do make a difference and help you get this far so fast? So, you know, the community of entrepreneurs that I've been able to, you know, connect with across both companies and the community within climate, um, uh, have both been invaluable. So I guess the number one tool there is community. In climate, it's, it's really interesting. Like, I don't really think that if a company is serious about climate, it has competitors in the sense that, you know, our end mutually shared goal here should be, you know, a better future for tomorrow. So you see a lot of collaboration in, in ways that I don't think we've seen historically uh, in, in the context of you know, commercial markets in, in a capitalistic environment, it's usually, you know, uh, end all be all fight to the death. You know, we need to be number one, you can be number two, I'm Coke, you're Pepsi. Here it's, hey, you're working on this type, this type of really great product and it's, it's better for the environment because of X, Y, or Z reason. What can I do to help? Like that's the feedback I get from from other founders in the climate space, and then frankly outside of climate, but within the confines of, you know, the entrepreneurial community, uh, I, I feel like there 
perhaps more so today than there was with my previous company is, is that kind of shared, we're in this together, entrepreneurship is hard, what can we do to lift each other up? How can I introduce you to my investors? You know, it, that's not necessarily uh, something that's super easy to find your way in. And you do have to cultivate those relationships. It can't be purely transactional. But I think really uh, community is my answer to your question. Um, there are Slack groups that I'm a part of where I can go and post a question, and, and whether that be something that's, you know, business oriented or climate oriented. And I'm going to get a wide range of different answers from people from all different walks of life, oftentimes different countries or different cities around the world. And and that's really interesting because, you know, it, it's not something that I had the first time around with company one um, here this time around. Uh, I think we've, we've been able to align ourselves with some really great corporate partners. Uh, so we leverage them as well. But I, I think just the interconnectivity of the community is hands down its number one asset and something that, you know, I would recommend listeners really try to, to embed themselves into. You don't need to be working on a climate startup to, to get into some of these Slack channels and, and to, to start traveling in, in these circles, so to speak. Um, the climate challenge isn't going anywhere. It's going to touch every industry. So the sooner you, you, you start to pay attention to it in, in a greater level, uh, you start to have conversations, get out there, meet people, understand, you know, what is being worked on and, and where they're, you know, where's their white space in the market for new solutions. Uh, I think the better off you're going to be. Climate is going to touch every, every industry and even yours, whether, you know, you're working in transportation or diamonds or a, a different market internally, uh, entirely rather. So, I, I would highly recommend getting out there, going to meetups, talking to folks. You know, we have Climate Week here in New York in September. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, there was just a Climate Week in San Francisco recently. Uh, go to these things. Take take time if this is something that matters to you, something that you're interested in. The bar, uh, you know, the, the barrier to entry there on the community front is, is very low. So it, it's something that uh, I, I advocate for on a frequent basis, and, and hopefully. That message is resonating with someone who's listening right now and has been on the fence. For people, it can feel like it might be too risky right now to start something or to say it's time to go raise money for this idea. Can you talk about some of those turning points where it wasn't the right, you weren't quite sure yet, and then it became, it felt inevitable, like you needed to do this type of thing. What were some of those points where it went from too risky to this needs to happen now? I grew up riding motorcycles and jumping motorcycles, snowboarding, jumping out of planes. My tolerance for risk is probably higher than the average bear. But with that said, uh, it's it's daunting and scary and risky to go out and start your own company. Um, I don't advocate that everyone do that. Entrepreneurship is is oftentimes fun, more often than not, extremely challenging. It can be lonely, um, hence why I also advocate that people kind of... Uh, really penetrate that community if they're going to do it and if they're going to go in full bore. For me, along our journey, there were a couple key turning points where, I mean, even from the first time I said the words, can we make diamonds from air? I knew I was going to have to pursue it to some degree. Um, I, I was busy. I had a job at that point, so I couldn't go full bore out of the gate. And it was a while before I was going to be able to do that. But one of the big breakthroughs that helped make it uh, that much easier of a decision for me was when we were able to first grow our first diamonds. And the first time I had a piece of uncut rough diamond in my hand that was made of entirely captured carbon. Um, even to this day, when I hold one of our diamonds in my hand, I, I get a little bit of a, a you know sense of goosebumps or something. It's, it's magical to think like what I'm holding in my hand was literally something that was contributing to, to global warming, however many weeks prior. That's something that makes it easier for me. Almost every time I, I'm sitting here, you know, running up against the barrier or wall and trying to figure out how are we going to go under it, over it, or through it. Um, raising money can be a barrier when you're building a deep tech company and, and, and there's a hardware component. By definition, that business is going to be capital intense. We think we have a pretty interesting, relatively low CapEx model that we can scale. Uh, however, if you're going to go out and you're going to raise, you need to make sure that you're doing it 
in conjunction with the right milestones so that you're able to go and raise you know, at the right valuation. And you don't want to be super valuation sensitive. It's not about that. It's about just raising what's needed for your business, making sure that you've, you've got enough uh, wiggle room for the unexpected, raise a little bit more money than you absolutely think you need. Raising funds is not an easy thing to do in any environment, let alone kind of the current macroeconomic environment that we're seeing you know, right in the wake of multiple banks here in the U.S. collapsing. Even just this morning, it was announced that First Republic Bank has been acquired by Jacob Morgan Chase. You know, it's it's a, it's a difficult time to raise. Climate companies seem somewhat insulated from that. We're still seeing climate deals getting done. Uh, that doesn't necessarily inspire faith for someone who's never done this before and doesn't know where to start. So there, fortunately, are a ton of helpful resources out there. There's some great podcasts and great books to read about both, you know, being started your entrepreneurial journey going and raising seed funding all the way through to you know different things happening in climate and frankly i think there's also more widespread support on the port on the part of uh, corporations uh, state and local governments as well as the federal government in the wake of uh, the investment reduction act being passed into law um, even the chips act which will touch the semiconductor industry and we're seeing kind of this resurgence, a renaissance, if you will, of, of domestic semiconductor fabrication. And I think that's also going to tie to uh, to climate. And there's going to be a lot of really great alignment between the CHIPS Act and uh, the IRA. So I think it's a good time always to get into climate. Like today is always better than tomorrow, but it, it can be daunting. It can it can be a little scary. And, you know, when you, when you get to those little proof points, like, you know, making your first diamond from captured carbon, it's really hard to to not keep going. It's really hard not to double down. So that was my journey. And that's how we got here. And, you know, the first time we placed a piece of diamond jewelry on a celebrity for, you know, a, a pre-Oscars event a couple of years ago, that was really exciting. Uh, we had a, we had a, you know, an A-list celebrity request some jewelry for a TV appearance just a few weeks ago. It was an inbound, you know, we didn't seek that out. We were asked for by name and uh, it shows that we're, we're, successfully executing on one part of our mission and awareness, growing awareness, allowing people to know that this can be done. We firmly believe that, you know, the diamonds we produce are the most sustainable diamonds on planet earth. And that type of recognition, even from an individual celebrity asking for our stuff by name, that is something that keeps us going. That's something that I, I, I can wake up and feel really proud about. Um, I really do believe with or without our, you know, ongoing longevity as a business. We've now introduced a concept that I think has changed the way people think about diamonds. And and that'll be here forever. You know, that change is now something that has happened. It has occurred past tense. You know, and, and when you get those types of, of wins, it's it's hard not to double or triple down and continue to do what you're doing and feel excited about it. I have a ton of wind in my sails these days because now we're starting to get some of that traction in non-diamond materials. You know, we're we're talking to leading brands in, across a number of different verticals that produce high-end products, produce, you know, high volume products that maybe not are super high-end, but these are household names. And the fact that they understand, you know, the validity and what we're doing, the value that it has to them, that's something that keeps me going. So you really have to chase down the wins. Uh, you keep putting those W's on the board and, and you know, it's like golf. Um, I'm not a great golfer. But, you know, once in an outing, I'll get a nice shot. And, and uh, you know, I have a, I have a, in fact, I think it was my father who calls that a be-back shot. Because when you hit one of those shots, you'll be back. And in entrepreneurship, when you get those, those wins, uh, it, keeps you, it, it fuels you for, you know, another day, another week, another month, another year. And, and, and that's something that you just need to kind of put in your crosshairs and march towards. Small incremental wins. Um, one step at a time. And if you can continue to do that, uh, each one of those steps on a long enough timeline starts to look like a trajectory, not just a, a number of disparate data points. And, and I think that's something that can make it easier to raise funding, that can make it easier to uh, go and secure relationships with you know, B2B partners or customers. And, uh, and you have to take a, a holistic but measured approach. Um, I'm a huge advocate for having giant lofty goals, but, uh, but taking your approach in, in small measured bites. Thank you for mentioning fundraising. I'd love to hear more about that journey to date. Talk us through your fundraising journey. My fundraising journey started with my first startup and uh, the first money in was through an accelerator program that we had gone through. I think it's fair to say I knew absolutely nothing about being an entrepreneur, frankly, nor raising capital at that point. 
um, I had a, an interesting idea for a company and a prototype that was in process, but not yet complete. And on the back of, I think, a, a fairly well-designed pitch deck and presentation, uh, we were offered a space in this accelerator. And it, it, you know, throughout the rest of the selection process and, and getting ready to start, I was continuing to work on this prototype. And, and I think we finished our prototype within the first couple of weeks of, of this accelerator and immediately realized how much more money we were going to need to raise uh, for that business. And uh, I had gone into it full-time myself and had two co-founders, one who started maybe a, like a week into the accelerator and the other one, maybe a month into the accelerator. It took them some time to phase out of their nine to five jobs. And it was daunting and scary. And I had absolutely no idea how we were going to go from, you know, having this really rough prototype of a hardware product to, to raising capital. And it started immediately speaking to people, seeking mentors, understanding how other founders had done it. Other founders have been probably the number one educational resource I've tapped into my entire career. And I've, I've tried to learn from others' mistakes and successes uh, so that hopefully I can, you know, avoid some of those missteps and, and, and more similarly follow well-trodden paths that seem to work for folks. For me, the number one thing I can convey to people is understanding the notion of, you know, building your fundraising strategy around speaking to as many investors as is needed. This can oftentimes be a numbers game. Um I think if you're really going out and giving it uh, the old college effort, you might talk to anywhere from 50 to 100, maybe even 150 investors in, in, in a fundraise. I mean, this is something that in today's market can take months to raise around. Um, when you're going out and raising uh, money, depending on what check size you're looking for and what stage of your business, there are different people that you need to be speaking with. There's obviously early days. You have friends and family. You have pre-seed funds and angelist syndicates and you have groups that you can tie you know tap into that will uh essentially pull their money together with these spvs um you can run them yourself uh we use carta carta has a roll-up vehicle uh product that they offer that would enable us to put together an spv and have a whole bunch of separate investors come on to our cap table through a single line and i think that's really advantageous um, I realize as I'm saying these things, I'm using some jargon and a, a first-time founder has never raised might not even know what some of those phrase, phrases mean. Um, an SPV is a specialty, a special purpose vehicle, uh, essentially a legal entity that makes the investment on behalf of a pool of investors. Uh, so you can, you know, if you had a bunch of guys who co-invest together often, uh, they might come in through an SPV. And then, you know, as far as my company sees it, we have one investor, it's that legal entity. And then the legal entity is managed by, by that group independently. As you go through successive fundraises uh, through two companies, um, well, I guess throughout my entire entrepreneurial journey, I've raised just shy of around $30 million across you know, multiple companies. Um, with Ether, uh, it's been about 25 of that, right? So the, the lion's share of, of the fundraising that I've done has been through this. Um, oftentimes, you hear this phrase lead investor without really understanding what a lead investor is. A lead investor is, is the group that's going to write the first and potentially largest check into a financing round. Oftentimes, those checks start at somewhere around 20% of a given raise. Um, they can represent a much larger percentage of that. Uh, anyone who's not quite coming in for 20% of a round is, is, you know, you might have others who say, well, are they really a lead then? Um, just because they're first doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the biggest at that point. And, you know, you end up splitting hairs. For us, um, we started raising capital when we were getting close to making a diamond. Um, we, we knew that it was right around the corner. And then as soon as we had our first batch of actual diamond material, they were not pretty. They were, you know, brown and you could not even really see through them and totally included, but they were diamond, diamond made of captured carbon. And then from there, we knew there were steps we could take to, to make them better uh, and achieve like a, a gem grade. But as soon as we had actually successfully grown diamond material from captured carbon, uh, that was really uh, the turning point, the catalyst moment. Oftentimes when you raise, like you have a lot of people who are excited about what you're doing and, and interested, but they're not really offering to write their checkbook. And you need sometimes a moment, uh, a turning point to catalyze uh, the process and, and trigger, you know, 
everyone saying, okay, let's let's sign on the dotted line and, and, and send some wire transfers. Um, sometimes that can be locking in your lead investor, right? You might be talking, oh, I want to raise a million dollars and you're talking on a number of angel groups and high net worth individuals. And, you know, maybe you've got half a million, uh, $600,000 of interest, but no one wants to be that first check. And then you find a group that's willing to cut you $250,000 check. And, and that's enough to kind of mobilize the troops, so to speak. Uh, and then you can use that momentum to then close out whatever balance is left. That's that exact process has happened for me. Um, but in the, in the case of our seed round at ether, it was successfully having diamond material. The minute we had successfully grown our first diamonds, we were able to raise, we ended up oversubscribing that round, uh, based on excitement, right? So there's a bit of a, a FOMO thing that can happen. Um, especially as you get into conversations with institutional investors, venture capitalists, whether that's, you know, a seed fund or a series A fund. These are, this is a community that like, you know, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial community is, is kind of tight knit and they share deal flow and you know, people hear about companies that are raising capital and, and you know, there are conversations happening in the background. So when you, when the iron's hot, you really want to strike. You want to capitalize on momentum when you can. In the case of our Series A, the process was a little different. Our Series A lead investor had found out about us after reading an article in Vogue, as I had mentioned earlier, and they reached out and said, hey, we're really interested in your company. This is directly in line with our thesis. Uh, we would love to talk about you know, what your fundraising strategy uh, looks like. Do you have plans for Series A? Those conversations evolved. Uh, they took a very pointed interest in what we were doing. And, and similarly, we really liked how their model was different than a lot of other, you know, venture funds that we had seen and met with. And, and uh, you know, they take a smaller number of outsized bets and then they, they really look to uh, support their invest, their, their portfolio companies in a, in a really active way. And a lot of VCs will say that, but I don't know that it's, it's true ever. If, if often, <laughs> um, we, we really we, we have some really great investors, but we were not actively going out to seek our Series A. Um, so them coming to us and starting that conversation is kind of what's known as preempting, right? Uh, after we got to know each other, we explained you know where we were at with the business, the intellectual property we had developed. They were interested in leading that Series A effort, and and for us, it wasn't just taking twenty percent of the round. In fact, it was more than that. But they also helped connect us with other investors that they thought that uh, might be interested in what we were doing, other groups that they had co-invested in other companies with and had those relationships. So, you know, they came and said, hey, we want to introduce you to this group or that group. And, you know, or I was scouring LinkedIn and, and finding decision makers at other funds that I wanted to chat with and seeing if there was mutual connections. Uh, one of the things that was beneficial to us and, and has been an ongoing part of our fundraising strategy is, is really uh, leveraging our investors. These are people with a vested interest in our company by definition. Uh, they want to see us succeed. And oftentimes it's hard to do that uh, in any kind of like direct manner outside of making introductions. So that's one thing that I've, I've leaned on our investors uh, quite heavily for is like once you start that process, uh, you've raised money. You, it's not just you anymore as the as the founder. Um, you may not have built a big team, but you've got some investors. Leverage them to navigate and engineer introductions to other folks, uh, whether that be a potential customer, potential partner, or a potential investor, and you know, leverage their relationships to get in the door. Don't be so transactional. For me, oftentimes I'd like to connect with investors far in advance of when we'd be looking to raise, uh, so that we can build rapport so that we can get to know each other. I can share data points along the way and they can track our successes or failures and say, all right, well, this is what I knew about your company when we started. This is what I know about your company today. And it makes that decision a lot easier. Our business is complex. There's a lot of different things going on in our business. It often takes you know, more than just a one hour pitch meeting uh, and Q&A to, to really explain the full vision of what we're doing, how we're, we're taking that vision and, and realizing it. And that's why it's important to, to start that process early, even when you're not actively fundraising. That's the number one thing I can, I can say. If you're building a business that will require outside capital to you know, establish itself and grow, uh, then you need to start cultivating those relationships as, as soon as possible. And then, you know, really, that takes us to where we are today. Where we go from here, I've never raised a Series B. I've never raised a Series C. I've never taken the company public. So I, who knows uh, what I'm going to experience at the time from here forward. But uh, I can tell you that our existing investors hopefully will be a part of that process and will play an integral role in, in helping connect the dots and introduce us to folks that um, will play a 
part in the ongoing growth and, and future of this business. So, um, yeah, get that process started sooner rather than later. If, if you have uh, an idea that you're excited about, get out there and start telling people. Don't don't hold it close to the vest. You know, take some steps to shore things up from an IP perspective. But you know, for me, I can tell you, um, I I am hesitant to share super, super sensitive material outside of an NDA, but I'm not asking investors for NDAs on first meeting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to walk them through the, you know, the bones of the business, uh, what, our, what our revenue model looks like, what our future R&D roadmap looks like uh, without getting too deep in the weeds that they need to you know, put, a, put an agreement in place in order for me to share those, uh, those details. So uh, what I find is especially with institutional investors, they're looking at a million companies. They're, they're looking at tons of ideas. They're not going to be stealing your ideas and giving them to their portfolio companies or spinning out their own. I mean, there are stories of these, ha- of these things happening, but they are so far and few between. It really shouldn't be a risk vector that people are overly concerned about. Um, there have probably been conversations that I've entered into, especially early in my career, that I probably should have had NDAs in place. But did that come back to bite me in the behind? No, you have to be more diligent about it, especially as you grow and as, as you as the stakes get a little higher. Um, you know, when you're raising capital, you'll want to do things like set up a data room where you have all the pertinent information, your financial model, uh, agreements, commercial agreements, advisor agreements, equity agreements, all there so that your uh, potential investors who are getting to know the business uh, can see that you have everything in order. And I, I really mention this because at the stage of life where we're at, for Ether, I can't share that data room with people who are not under NDA. Um, yeah. Whereas when we were a seed company and there was nothing particularly sensitive in there, I was giving links to our data room to anyone who asked. Um, yeah. You know, you, you probably couldn't finish getting the sentence out of your mouth before I had a dachshund link in your inbox. So you know, there, there's a process that you can run. And, and in fact, the more process you put into a fundraise, the higher likelihood you're going to succeed. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, bit of an art and a bit of a science as all good things in life are. And, and it's something that you, you learn the ropes with as you go, you know, so you, you kind of just have to get out there and do it and you'll learn along the way. Um, I will say one thing I have learned about fundraising is you very quickly learn whether or not it's going to work. You get out to the market, you start sharing your story, you start sharing your milestones and your market traction and you, you get some feedback from the first few investors. And you know, depending on how long it takes for them to get back to you, that's a signal. Uh, if they come yeah. back and say, hey, you know, we looked at this and it's not a fit for us and you get too many of those, it's, it begs the question, why? And, you know, or, or is your valuation too high? Uh, are your your goals too lofty? Is it not based in reality? And you have to start to scratch at that and, uh, and do what you can to dial things in and get to where you need to be. Quick hot take is lots of fantastic climate tech startups out there. Which one would you invest in right now? That is not an easy one for me to answer on the fly. Um I say ether as a joke, but it is serious. I mean, most it's not often you hear of, of founders investing in their own companies at a certain point, right? But I, I do. Uh, I'm, I made an investment in our Series A round um, because I'm so bullish on what it is we're doing, and I, you know, I obviously have my founder stake in the business, but um, I, I, I really do feel so deeply convicted about our business model and the role that it'll play. That said, the the world where we're operating and the type of climate companies that we're seeing, you know, we see a lot of companies in the DAC space and, and you know, point source. Uh, we see a lot of large scale direct air capture plants coming on online. And I'd say by virtue of how close they are to what we're doing and, and seeing the DAC segment of, you know, this kind of broader climate fight mature, that's something that's part of our our mission as an organization. So I guess in order to see our mission realized, I would probably invest in a DAC company. I don't know which one, however, um, it would be one of the earlier ones because we, I want to see, you know, I want to see a world where we don't have one or two leading DAC companies. I want I want to see a world where we have six or seven of them spread out all over the world, operating in different markets. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know that there's one specific DAC company that I would point to. It's healthy. You want everyone to continue growing. That means more capital in the market, more capital for you too. What can the Climate Avengers community do to help Ether? Tell your friends about what it is we're doing, right? You know, brand exposure is the number one thing that touches both sides of our, our mission, right? And, and those sides, to be clear, 
successfully growing our business commercially, but also educating people and inspiring them as to how science can play a role in, in you know, addressing greenhouse gas concentration. Um, science has to get us out of this problem. And if we can, you know, let more and more people know that we exist, those are potentially more customers to buy products that utilize carbon that we've helped, you know, put into those products. Uh, but it's also, you know, representative of this larger shift in thinking societally um, that matters to us. So you can help us by telling people that we exist, but you can also help us inherently by bringing more and more people into these climate oriented conversations day in and day out. Perfect. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add? Um, I, I want to thank you for you know, giving me some airtime to, to talk about a couple of these things. I do think it's, it's vitally important that people understand the role that carbon capture and utilization uh, can play in, in addressing climate change. And, and I think it's something that uh, we need to be speaking more about. It's a it's an area where there's a lot of confusion in terms of terminology. What is carbon capture? What is DAC? What is point source? So I think the more time uh, we spend talking about it, the more people you know, really wrap their heads around it and understand how this will impact them in their day-to-day lives. So um, I'm appreciative of any opportunity I have to sit here and, and you know, wax poetic on, on why DAC and, and carbon capture are really important and, and tell our story and get that out there. So uh, thanks for, for putting us out on the airwaves and, and uh, yeah, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. And thank you for all your insights. I know there's, we covered a lot of different topics and they're all very relevant for for this community. And thank you for being such a great guest. That was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a Climate Avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of. Whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in avenging the climate especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur, or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time, avenge on.